You've probably heard of Mongolia. It's above China and below Russia on the map. It's known for its vast, open, rugged landscape, nomadic herders that roam the wilderness. And outside of the capital of Ulaanbaatar, there's few roads. In fact, once onto the grassy steppe, it's more routes and tracks than anything else. It's an adventure rider's paradise. It's got stunning landscapes, remoteness, challenging riding, and deep cultural experiences. Mongolia holds the world record for the most space per capita, home to just over 3 million people with a landmass that's larger than Peru. And it has a host of parks, underfunded parks, where only a handful of rangers patrol on horseback and foot year in, year out. In the U.S., there's an organization called Rally for Rangers. And Rally for Rangers is an organization that helps support those parks in Mongolia and other places by bringing them new motorcycles for their patrols. Here's how it works. You sign up to go on one of these adventures, in this case, Mongolia, with Rally for Rangers. And then you get all the materials you need to raise the money for your trip, the funds that are going to cover your adventure. These funds will cover everything once you land in Mongolia. And they include the purchase of a brand new motorcycle. You ride that motorcycle on an epic adventure. And in the end, you deliver it to a park ranger that needs it for the patrol, that desperately needs it for their patrol. This past year, Lester Appel, at 71 years old, was one of those riders with Rally for Rangers. He rode the Gobi Desert and so much more. Today, we get to find out what it's like not only to ride Mongolia, but Lester's story of riding Mongolia with Rally for Rangers. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Venn. Simon Pavey. Bill Bragu. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Graham Jarvis. Quentin Smote. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. CyclePump.com. My name is Lester Appel, and uh, I'm retired, but I still own and operate a elevator company in the Bay Area, uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Almost my name, Apple Elevator, similar. These days, uh, I, I ride motorcycles, and uh, I hike with my dog, and my wife and I like to travel, and we're trying to use up our dotage in ways that that we would enjoy mostly travel and for me uh, motorcycling is a big thing 
Lester. Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Well, thank you. And welcome to your dog, too, I hear in the background. Who's... <laughs> hey, my, my wife put him outside, I think, but I'm going to have to deal with that. <laughs> it's not, he's not going to be put, he won't put up with that being put outside. No, it's about 30 degrees out. He's not going to be happy out there. Oh, right. <laughs> so, Lester, you've been riding for how long now? Oh, nearly 60 years. I mean, I, I got my first motorcycle when I was 13 years old, so I'm 71 today. You're 71. Yeah, I I actually have gotten into more stuff with motorcycles in the last five years than I, I did for a lot of those years in terms of expanding my abilities and learning how to, you know, deal with dirt and riding off-road and ADV riding. So 71, and you're, you're still having the, the time of your life. You're out there doing adventures. You said it's been about five years that you've been into adventure riding. What got you into uh, a that? Little, maybe a little more than that. I, I Because I actually um, bought a BMW R100GS. Oh, that was probably, I've probably had that bike for closer to 15 years, but I didn't do a lot of dirt work with it. You know, it was mostly riding on the pavement and two up and, maybe, you know, point to point riding and some gravel roads and stuff, but I hadn't, I hadn't really gotten into serious, um, dirt roads or, or anything that I would say is, is dirt bike. What got you into that? What what was it that attracted you to adventure motorcycling? Well, my brother-in-law is a long time motorcycle mechanic and he's also, uh, very enthusiastic when he and my sister got together. Um, he actually got me back up on motorcycles. He had a number of them and he said, oh, you ride motorcycles. Let's go on a trip together. I have several and you could ride one of mine. So that that got me back into uh, motorcycling and that's probably 30 years ago now. Mm. And, and so how about the adventure portion of it? You see something on, you know, on somewhere or what was it? Well, as I said, my brother-in-law, George, uh, he uh, always had his eye on these uh GS motorcycles is the old airhead and uh, always wanted one in the worst way. And uh, I, I didn't really know about that. You know, I, I had heard about the Paris to car race, but I didn't really understand that it was getting to be a, a, a thing, you know, that people were going to go crazy over these things and be doing it everywhere. Um, so when I got an opportunity to get one of these, I actually spied two of them in a motorcycle shop in Portland. And I called my sister up and said, are you feeling flush today? Because I'm going to make an offer on two of these motorcycles if you want to get one for George. And she said, oh, go ahead, do it. You know, so I actually bought two of these old airheads at the same time. And that kind of started me down the path like, okay, where are we going to ride these things now that we have these bikes that do all this (laughs) stuff, you know? So what was your your first real adventure ride then? Oh, gosh. Um, I think our first ride on it was um, high in the mountains in uh, in California uh, over Ebbets Pass. It's, it's only open in the summer. And my sister came out, flew out because they live in the Midwest. They flew out and I met them in Sacramento. We surprised George with the motorcycle. I had purchased a trailer and I had both bikes on the trailer. So we, there we got these motorcycles and 
So we pulled them off and we dusted them off and we got on top of them and we wrote from Sacramento over the top of Ebbets, um, Ebbets Pass. Anyway, the, the, the long and short of that was it was just absolutely beautiful. It was summertime, a windy road, paved, but very nice and fairly remote for the type of riding I had been doing. And we, we came down out of Ebbets Pass back into the Nevada side and then met up with my sister in Reno. And I still have it, of course, and he still has his, but we've, you know, subsequently gotten more interested in, in riding dirt. And uh, maybe 10 years ago or so, or perhaps a little less, I took a couple of courses, um, even took one, the first one I did on the GS, you know, and they're they're showing you how to ride properly off-road and dirt and, um, you know, did a, a day course just initially. And they're having you pop this thing over logs and stuff. And I had the biggest, heaviest bike of them all. You know, everybody's on little 250s and stuff and I'm... I'm horsing this thing around, but it, it was good. It was, you know, it it told me I had a lot to learn. Now, that was not necessarily an adventure motorcycle course, I'm assuming, because nowadays you can take a course and, you, and everybody's going to be on big bikes. Yeah, that's true. Now, we're going to talk about your ride to Mo- Mongolia that you've just done. You've just come back from recently. But um, before the Mongolia trip, what other sort of trips have you done? Oh, I've been up to Alaska once again with my brother-in-law and and. uh a friend of his, um, we did, we did Alaska. I attempted that one on my, on my airhead and I got as far as Whitehorse with it and the transmission started to go out on it. So I, I ended up parking it there in Whitehorse and, and finding a guy to lease me a V-Strom and I finished the trip on a V-Strom and did a little loop in Alaska and then uh, I soloed on up the Dempster Highway after my buddies went, you know, back to their home, I, I stayed out there a while and rode up to Inuvik. And we've done a couple of trips over the years to the Tale of the Dragon. A lot of riding out of St. Louis where I can come to town and use his GS. And of course, he has other motorcycles. I actually, you know, this last time he and I rode together was to the uh, Moa Rally last, last summer. And I rode on a 50-year-old airhead that he has, slash six. And uh, that's where I got a chance to meet Tom, actually, for the first time. Oh, from Rally for Rangers. Yeah. Oh, okay. he, well, well, let's talk about the, this trip to Mongolia. So how did you how did you find out about this? On your show, uh, I, uh, I was listening one day, and uh, I was in Tucson at the time. My wife and I winter down in Tucson these days. And... I was listening to the show and I got pretty caught up in his story and the tale of it all and uh, pretty excited about the whole thing. And literally by the time I finished the the episode, I went right to my computer and looked up Rally for Rangers and started an application. So what was it about this Rally for Rangers story that really drew you in? It sounded like a good thing for me to do, uh, being as I, I am on the retired side of things and I have a little wherewithal and uh, it was something more than just going on a ride. You know, I, I had ridden in China uh, with an organized ride and another friend of mine uh, a few years ago and enjoyed it immensely. But this is a whole nother level of, of, uh, involvement where you're, you're actually trying to do 
a positive thing for for the community you're going into, for the rangers and and for the planet itself, if you can get that big a view of it, is that you're helping to uh, improve the uh, the lot of these rangers who have you know a rough go of it up there trying to you know police a whole lot of ground with very few people and no equipment. Yeah, and yeah, that's what I really, really like about Rally for Rangers, for sure. How difficult was it to get signed on to it? I mean, is it just a matter of filling out the application, you get accepted, or do they have some sort of screening thing they do with you? There was quite a bit of screening. I was a little surprised, actually. Um, they wanted a lot of information from me. They wanted, you know, to look at my social media. They wanted video and photos of of me, which I didn't have a lot of because the rides I was on, you know, if it, if it was like, say, the White Rim Canyon in Utah, which I've ridden, I would ride with somebody, but it it, it wasn't like me taking pictures of myself, you know. So I didn't have a lot of <laughs> I didn't have a lot of photos of me on the bike. Because what they want is they want to see you ride. They want a video of you riding so they can see what what skill level you are. Exactly, and uh, you know, so I was a little nervous about that, and uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But I, I, you know, I explained to them all that, and and sent various pictures and some video that I had shot, and and they could see I was in the high mountains in Colorado uh, doing high passes and things like that. You know, I had some experience. Um, I didn't pretend to be any more proficient than I am. Probably a wise thing to do for something like this, because you are going to somewhere fairly remote. And and the thing is, with this is what you're doing is you're you're raising funds. That's part of the adventure. You're, you raise the funds for you to go on this, and then you buy a bike. So, did you do the fundraising? Like, what was that experience for you, or did you just do it yourself? Pay for it yourself. I, I did attempt some fundraising. I actually did raise a few thousand dollars um, with nice. a with a fundraiser with a GoFundMe, but. Um, you know, the bulk of it, I was able to produce myself for the 503 charity, which they are. Uh, they're the Mongol Ecology Center, but they're, you know, they've, they've done these rides, as you've brought out in your show, all over the world. Um, but they, they started in Mongolia, so it all goes, the roots are back there. Lester, you haven't been to Mongolia before this, have you? I had not been to Mongolia before. Okay, so this is all brand new. So so you don't have a clue, really, I mean, other than looking at the the internet, right? I had ridden in uh, Yunnan, China, which is as close as I got. Um, mm-hmm. Geographically, is not all that far from there. Uh, and that was an organized trip that I did with a buddy of mine um, where I flew into Beijing and then flew into Dali. And we picked out our little shinnery bikes and we ran for 10 days. So it was about the same amount of days. I had done a similar kind of trip, but it was much more pavement. It was I was actually at the time a little disappointed on that trip that I didn't get into dirt. Terrain wise, it's got to be markedly different than what you experienced in Mongolia. Oh yeah, it definitely was. I mean, we were in China, I was in the foothills of the Himalayas and it was lush and high up and beautiful in its own way. But in, in the, this particular Mongolia trip, we were in the Gobi desert. So how did they prep you? What, what, What did they do? Online meetings? What was it? Yeah, we had a couple of Zoom meetings and they actually uh, provided a pamphlet that I printed up that was many pages of suggestions of gear and, you know, how to prepare yourself to come to the trip and what to bring and not to bring and uh, the how-tos of it all. So they, they actually had a pretty extensive package of information to digest. 
But you still got to pack all your own stuff. You're, you're taking your own helmet and gear and all that stuff. Yes. Uh, with the exception of the camping gear, which they provided, I didn't need to, you could bring your own sleeping bag, for example, if you wanted to, but very few of us did. Right. Are you a camper before this? I, I've done quite a bit of like moto camping, if you will, you know, point to point riding, uh, like I said, in Colorado and uh, Utah and here and there, uh, we're spend a few days out and we go from place to place and camp two or three nights. Right. So you've, you've done that sort of thing before, but the, so the, the day you're leaving, maybe getting on the flight, whenever it was most significant, what was your feelings? I was nervous. Uh, I was like, <laughs> I, you know, I hope I'm up for it and all that. Uh, you know, that was pretty natural for me to feel like that. Um, but, uh, you know, you just jump in and find out what you find out about yourself. So when you first arrive in Mongolia, just talk about that. I arrived at Ulaanbaatar and there was a lovely young lady and a, a driver waiting for me. I eventually hooked up with them. And then I spent, I think, another three or four hours at the airport waiting for the next uh, attendee for the for the rally. <laughs> so I was I was pretty tired and sitting there drinking tea and waiting for this this other fellow to show up. As it turned out, they assigned him to be my roommate. So it was good that I, I was there when he arrived. So who was your roommate and what was he like? Oh, he, he's great. His name's Graham and he's a pilot, airline pilot. And, uh, you know, very soft-spoken, not a lot of words, but um, kind of a quiet, but obviously intelligent guy. And he was maybe 62, perhaps probably closest in age or, or as close as any of the, the other people on the ride. To me, I was, I was the old guy. You were the old guy. I was <laughs> so, the old guy. But being the old guy, I mean, as, as you're saying, that's kind of cool, isn't it? I mean, yeah, you're 71 yeah. and you're yeah. doing stuff like, would your dad have been doing something like this at 71? Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm grateful for my for my health and my vitality and the fact that I I can still do these things and you know I've I've come to a lot of things that are associated with younger people kind of late in life if you will you know mm -hmm. like I well I was windsurfing at a mid age that was fine but I took up like surfing when I was over fifty you know and I took up. Right. Uh, snowboarding when I was 50 something, you know, and things like that. So I, I'm kind of a late bloomer when it comes to, uh, you know, certain sports that people would associate with youth. Um, not the least of which is motorcycle riding. But it kind of makes you wonder though, if you're, if your parent, you know, your, your parents or my parents for that matter, um, anyone who's, who's older, over 50, I guess, if your parents didn't sort of miss out, like, I mean, did they, did they fall for what they were they thought you were supposed to do and, and say, I'm old, I'm, I'm decrepit. I can't do anything. I mean, because there's so many people that they're doing things at later ages now. Yeah. My mom was pretty adventurous. Um, she's passed now, but you know, she was zip lining when she was 80 years old, you know, I mean, oh, she, wow. yeah, so oh, you've got was, a lot to live up to. She, yeah. Yeah. She was, <laughs> she traveled the world a bit and she was pretty adventurous. So uh, in that front, she stayed youthful pretty much till the end. Right. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. So, so talk a bit about this bike that you're going to be riding. This is not your typical or what many people would see as your typical adventure motorcycle. 
in my mind. No, no. Uh, they actually switched bikes on us at the last minute. Like by the second Zoom meeting, they said, oh, here's a change. We're not going to be on the uh, Yamahas. We're going to be on a Honda. And it turned out to be a great choice um, because according to the people that, that ought to know, those that have done the ride a number of times, um, it was a more worthy machine than the uh, than the Yamaha would have been. So we ended up on these XR uh, 190s, which is not a bike that's marketed and sold as far as I know in Canada or the United States yet, yeah, but so. they're probably going to come here. But it's a, as, as my group ages out, we find ourselves going to lighter, smaller motorcycles, you know, yeah. <laughs> because when you're up in a high pass and you can barely breathe and you're, you know, in a rock garden with a bike up on the upside down on top of you, it's nice to have it weigh, you know, 275 pounds <laughs> instead of 575 pounds. What was the Yamahas that were supposed to be that you were supposed to be riding? I think they were uh, AG two hundreds. I think what they're called. I think it's the A is for agriculture or something. They're, yeah, it's the, the agriculture bike, which I, I think the agri agriculture bike, which I think you, you find in Australia. I don't know where else you find it, but I know you find yeah. it in Australia. Actually, both of these bikes are sold in Australia. One of the uh, attendees of of this rally was Australian, Steve. I called him Steady Steve. Um, Steady Steve did not fall at all on the entire trip. He got one of those awards. Uh, I, on the other hand, I, I think I would, if they gave an award for who fell the most, that would probably be me. You mean they didn't give you an award for that? And no, no, no. They, I know I, I, I was expecting a rubber chicken or something, you know, some kind of, you know, so the ride was its own reward. So you're riding XR190. So this is a pretty small bike. How do you feel on it? Like, like physically, or do you feel that you're too big for the bike or? Uh, I didn't feel too big for the bike because I'm not a, a huge guy. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm like, uh, five, seven and 175 pounds maybe. And so I, I actually fit the bike rather well, but watching these other guys, along there, there are some big dudes there that, that, that look, look like they were, towering over the bike, but you know, somehow or another, you know, they, they were worthy little bikes. They, these guys rode them rather well. And, and these are set up, you know, as dirt bikes pretty much. I mean, they're not super high quality stuff. You know, it's not, it's, it's actually similar in riding it. I, I, I now have a CRF 300 L uh, that I ride and it was similar to that, you know, and, Coming off of bigger bikes, I, I rode the Big Red Pig for a number of years, the 650. And and the 650, you know, is big and tall and muscular and it's got plenty of torque and all that. And when you go to the smaller bikes, they, they feel underpowered. You know, you feel underpowered. But when you stop and think about it, you know, how much power do you really need? You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's not, it's not necessary to get you down the road. And we certainly proved it with these bikes after riding them 1700 kilometers, we turned them over to Rangers who are now out doing their work on them. 1700. Wow. That's, that's a good ride. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, and it was all, I mean, virtually all dirt and sand, lots of sand. Well, so how did the, the adventure begin? What do you do? Well, we showed up as we started to talk about at the airport and I came a couple of days early because I wanted to spend a little time in Ulaanbaatar 
And uh, that was a good call. A number of us did. And we, we went out and uh, we had meals together. We got to know each other. Uh, we went to a cultural show. We went to a monastery. We did, we did uh, some touristing around, if you will, mm-hmm. um, as well as uh, doing orientation before we left. Um, then we went and got the bikes. We drove them from where they were stored across town to a nearby location to the hotel. And each of us had a chance to customize the bike a little, if you will, to add little sparkles to the bike that we might want to have. Like what sort of things? Oh, like USB plugs, uh, uh, bar risers, that type of thing. Oh, I see. Um, tail bags, um, that, that sort of thing. So we had, we had more than enough time to, uh, to do all that and to be ready for, uh, for the day we shoved off. And you're riding right out of the city, I'm assuming, to begin with. Right. We rode them out of the city. Probably the most dangerous part of the ride was getting out of Ulaanbaatar. It's <laughs> uh, pretty busy. Yeah. And we, we didn't exactly get up at the crack of dawn. So by the time we got going, it was like peak traffic, I believe, on a Monday. And uh, it was pretty crazy. But um, we all made it out unscathed. Uh, we did become acquainted with the bikes on pavement first. So, so we did ride out the first day, I would say at least half the day, maybe a little more on pavement. And then all of a sudden our lead rider just cuts off the road and heads off into a field you know? <laughs> and we had to stay with him. Uh, so so our, you're like, you're, when you're riding out of the city, you're like on a highway sort of thing. And then he just turns off. Yeah. Yeah. It was city streets, the two, two lane, four lane, city run runs of highway whatever it wasn't wasn't a lot of highway it was more more city streets with crazy traffic and traffic circles and stuff you have to take some considerable care with and uh, so we we followed our leader we had a we had a leader who was a mongolian uh excellent rider chuka was his name and then we had uh, one of the participants one of the guys who been to six of these things rose sweep in the back. The thing is when you meet everybody, you know, coming off a plane or even you're going out and you're doing your touristy things to look at, at each other, we have no idea what the other one rides like. Like you can't tell man or woman stature means nothing. Personality means nothing as far as riding skills go. Absolutely. You know, and, and I, I knew that I wasn't going to be the best rider. I was just hoping I wasn't the worst. <laughs> but it doesn't really matter though. It's not about that though, is it? No, no, but it's a natural human impulse. No, I know to, it is you know, for sure, yeah. and, and that's part of the fear, isn't it? That you're that you're going to do something stupid, or or you're yeah. not going to be up to the task, or something. I like that. I got real comfortable with doing stupid things. <laughs> well, that's good. That's that's a good. I, actually, I was I was somewhat famous for it on this ride. Is it right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they weren't all stupid, but there were. I had my share. So you, you rode out of the city, you make a quick turn, you're off into a field. Is that it? Are you on dirt at that point? No, I mean, all of a sudden we're blazing across dirt, you know, with no, like there's some tracks, but there's no apparent road anywhere. And we're just kind of heading out. So we're, neat. we're at the outskirts of the town and we're, we're just going. And at this time, by this time I'm thinking, uh Oh, I wonder if I'm, I'm the guy for this, you know, cause it started to be fairly challenging for me. I mean, I'm, I'm on my feet. I'm doing a lot of everything I've learned how to do just to make sure I keep it up. Right. Well, we'll talk about challenging. What do you mean? 
Well, you know, when you, you when you when you when you move from pavement riding to dirt riding, it's it's a whole nother animal. And mm-hmm. and if you you're you're running through loose gravel or you're going through some brush or you're going, you know, like these are things that you, you're not used to as a street rider. So not having a vast amount of experience in the dirt, you know, just getting in dirt tracks was like, okay, this is this is what I came for. Just relax, breathe, do what you know how to do. Mm-hmm. And and so, yeah, I'm just saying that the challenge of riding in dirt versus riding on the street. And they put nice tires on these. They changed all the tires. So we had good dirt tires. We had new bikes. I, I, I just relaxed and then kind of went with it. And so the first day out, we made it to a campsite by a river. And we were still... You could see girls, you could see uh, small girl camps. There was still some folks about, but within sight, but we were in a more sparse area, but we were really not in the Gobi yet. That's, that's day one. So you, when you camp, you're, you're camping how? Are you setting up tents? Yeah, we all get our, it's kind of like being in the military, you know, here's your, <laughs> here's your tent, it's number watch and such, and here's your pad, it's number watch and such, remember your numbers, you know, you get... And the the support crew is in is in vans. They've got, I think they had two Toyota uh, Toyotas, but they had two of these Russian vans that look like a VW, and uh, they were kind of the workhorses. And they haul all this stuff in there, so they have a support team that's um, almost as big as the riding team. You know, wow. so there's at least ten people in support, and they set up a camp. Every night, uh, and the first night they, you know, had set up the camp and, and one of the amazing things about it is you eat like a king out there, you know, you're, <laughs> you're like roughing it, but, but they're preparing these wonderful meals for you out, out in the middle of nowhere. And you're eating what stuff like boiled testicles and reindeer tongue. <laughs> well, Charlie and you and uh, there, there's a, there's a little bit of that sort of thing, <laughs> but by and large, not, it's not quite that adventurous. It's, it's, uh, but they do eat a lot of meat. I will say that. Oh, yeah. I think my cholesterol went up 20 points on the, on this trip. <laughs> uh, there's very meat oriented diet. Uh, you know, the, the nomadic diet is very heavily into, you know, herding animals, you yeah. know, a lot of sheep and goats and cow and, you know. When, when you're looking around at this camp, what, what does it look like? Um, the camp. The first night, it could be like whatever, you know, the environment is that you're in. But the camp itself was, um, the first night was very nice. We were in a lovely spot, you know, so it was very scenic. And so we were just getting used to like our little tent and our bag and finding a air mattress that holds air and things like that, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. so it, we were just learning the ropes. They show us everything. Right. You, you said the camp was set up, but you're setting up your tent and all your personal stuff, I guess. Right. Your personal camping, you're doing that, but, yeah. but the, the larger tents that you, that where they prepare the food and the open air tent where you eat and all that, the crew sets all that up. And I mean, you can help them if you really have your act together and you fast getting your stuff together. But I was completely slow the first couple of nights of getting, just, keeping up, you know, to get my stuff packed and unpacked, yeah. and get rolling each day. When you say tents, these are big tents, like, like circus style tent thing. No, not no, no. Tent. The, t- the, the tent where you're not, our, not, the, no, not our meals. tents. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Actually, 
Yeah, the meal tents were large and the cook's tent, that was, they were pretty big. Um, not circus tent exactly, but, yeah. but much larger than a, than a camping tent. Right. So you, you were starting to say, so that, that was the, you know, your first day. Yeah. And then comes day two. Oh, so day two, is, <laughs> I can day, tell by your tone, it's the monumental day. It's where things actually day, start day to happen. Day two was eventful. It was more eventful than I knew it was going to oh. be. Let me put it that way. I, I, uh, I had not put the riser bars on the bike yet. Um, I, I wasn't sure I was going to do it. And then after a day of riding, they were offered to me. They had, somebody had purchased an extra pair. So uh, <clears throat> with the help of the in-house mechanic, you know, we, we put the riser bars on at the morning that we're leaving. And we get ourselves on the road and we're going. And I'd say less than 30 minutes into the ride, I'm blasting along down a dirt path in, in a line with everybody else. And out of the periphery of my vision, I'm seeing this blur coming along about the same speed I'm going. And before I had a chance to realize what was going on. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back to Lester's story. Stay with us. A little word association for you here. Cold, wet, smelly, uncomfortable. Those are words that other riders use about their feet. Riders that have not yet experienced the incredible warmth of the world's best cold weather socks for riding. Pearly's Possum Socks. Pearly's Possum Socks are made of a unique blend of possum fur and merino wool and knitted into a sock meant specifically and directly for riding motorcycles, resulting in the warmest, most supple, durable sock that has ever been. And those natural fibers, the possum fur, the merino wool, they wick away moisture from your skin. Those natural fibers cannot be synthesized by man, period. Those natural fibers also have lanolin, naturally, in them that refuses to let bacteria grow, so no stink. I'm wearing my pearly possum socks right now, not because I'm riding, obviously, but because they feel great and they keep my feet warm on this cool floor. I use them for riding, but I also use them for almost every other outdoor activity in all four seasons. If I'm wearing boots, you can bet I'm wearing Pearly's possum socks. That's because I know the value of the best cold weather socks money can buy. Pearly's possum socks is the official sock of Adventure Rider Radio because I am so taken by these things. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com Well, you're probably going to need a large bookshelf to hold all the motorcycle books you can find at RoadDogPub.com. Road Dog Pub specializes in motorcycle books. And they... Actually, no. I think Road Dog Pub really specializes in great motorcycle stories. That's what it's all about. Finding and publishing great motorcycle stories. And that's what Road Dog Pub does. The reason they do that is because the owner of Road Dog Pub 
is a rider just like you and I, Mike Fitterling. Mike loves to ride and rides at every chance he can and is passionate about what he does for our community in publishing these great motorcycle stories. And they have new books all the time. So whether it's for you to escape into someone's epic adventure and live through them vicariously while maybe you sip your coffee or brandy in your comfortable chair this winter, or whether maybe it's a book to inspire a friend or a family member, check out RoadDogPub.com. They have new releases all the time. As I said, recently they've had Ron Davis with another book, Rubber Side Down, Steve Sherrill's book, Motorcycles, Minotaurs, and Banjos, and A Year in Motion from the publisher himself, Mike Fitterling. You can buy Road Dog Pubs at all fine bookstores, or you can sort of skip that and go right to the publisher at RoadDogPub.com. And when you do, make sure you let them know you heard them here at Adventure Rider Radio, RoadDogPub.com. If you're serious about riding and serious about getting the most from your motorcycle, it's a really simple thing you have to do. Get rid of those stock foot pegs and replace them with IMS Products foot pegs. IMS makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs designed specifically for adventure riding. The owner of IMS is Scott Wright. Scott is an avid adventure rider and former Baja 1000 winner. So you kind of get a feel for where that passion comes from that goes into this line of motorcycle foot pegs. I'm going to walk you quickly through the the three series that they have there for us. The ADV-1 and ADV-2 foot pegs are large foot pegs. They spread the weight out of your foot on that foot peg. Very comfortable for large stretches or open stretches of road, rather. It reduces stress on your feet, your legs, and your hips. So fire roads, highway, long distance, these are wide platforms. ADV-1, ADV-2. The Rally Series is uh, an aggressive foot peg sort of for the, for the next level rider. They also spread the weight out from your boot to reduce stress on your, on your hips and your legs, but they're a smaller foot peg than the ADV-1 and ADV-2. And then the Core Enduro. The Core Enduro foot pegs from IMS are for more technical, aggressive riding, right through to racing, of course. They're, they're a smaller peg, and you can get them with a very aggressive tooth design that really keep your feet planted. So if you ride very technical things, that might be more of a peg for you. They're also much smaller, so less chance of them catching anything on the outside. I really like these pegs. IMSproducts.com is the website. They warranty all their pegs for life. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. And uh, I'd say less than 30 minutes into the ride, I'm blasting along down a dirt path in in a line with everybody else. And uh, out of the periphery of my vision, I'm seeing this blur coming along about the same speed I'm going. And before I had a chance to realize what was going on, there, there was two horses at a full gallop that that cut across my path. They went straight in front of me, right across the path, which happened, it happened to intersect with me at a, at a little low dip that was full of gravel and, you know, was going to be like pay attention time anyway. And then all of a sudden I've got this wild eyed, rather large black horse in front of me. And, um, I, the, the best I could do with this situation was to try and, uh, 
turned my bike the direction the horse was going, which was right into some rather tall brush and and into sandy dip in the road. And anyway, I went down like, you know, immediately. Uh, the fellow behind me, those behind me thought that I hit the horse, which I didn't hit the horse, but I came very, very close to hitting the horse. And it was, it was kind of a bailout move. And anyway, when, when, uh, when they got to me and came up to me and all that, they checking to see because I was the first guy to hit the dust, you know, I was, <laughs> I had to just, I, I had the, I had the honor of being the first one to fall. And, uh, so I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm all right. I'm all right. And we, we pulled off my boot and my, my foot was kind of black and blue and it was kind of black and blue on my shin and oh, wow. starting to be swollen and stuff. And the doctor, they had a doctor who was, uh, an orthopedic specialist actually. I found out later, um, he wanted to examine me and I said, no, no, it's good. It's just a sprain. I'm going to ride. And so I just jammed my foot back in the boot and tightened the boot up and rode. Lester, let me ask you about this. Now, why would you not let a doctor check your foot when he's right there? And let me just give you what I think is your answer because you didn't want to know. Is that why? That's probably pretty true. I think I was wish casting. Mm -hmm. I was, I, I had it in my head that if I had broken something, um, I would be in too much pain to ride. Yeah. And I, I knew I wasn't in too much pain to ride. So I, therefore I kind of came to the, uh, to the self, you know, engineered conclusion that I was okay. You know? Yeah, but it'd be so easy to have him check it. He's right there. That's what he's for. He's a doctor <laughs> on, but you refuse that. You didn't want him to look at it. You put it back in the booth. Exactly. Because I know from what I'd learned that if you're injured, they're going to take care of you, right. you know, and, and that if, if that involves taking you away to a hospital, they'll do it. And I knew we were still close enough to town, probably in the back of my head, I knew this, or maybe I know it in retrospect, thinking of it now. Yeah. Because we eventually did have somebody who got shipped off to the hospital, um, but that's another another day in the ride. Mm -hmm. But in this case, um, I was convincing myself that I I had a bad sprain. I knew it was badly sprained, yeah. but um, but I could ride. It's got to sort of bum you out too. I mean, it's day two. You, you yeah, it's just like we're just getting started. Yeah. We hadn't made it to the Gobi yet, you know. And I'm thinking, oh no, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna. Sprained ankle's not going to keep me out of this. Yeah. So, and to be fair, though, it's to be fair, it's not right. your fault anyway. <laughs> the horse, like technically, the horse. Oh no, it, no that that wasn't really that wasn't really my yeah. fault. Now, I learned later on, riding uh, up behind Chuka, watching him, that you could actually beep your horn and yell at these horses and stuff. You could kind of herd them away from you. Oh, and. That's what I learned to do later, but nobody had oriented me to that. Right. I didn't know that that was like a thing, you yeah. know, that if I honk my horn at him, he might not cross my back. Yeah, well, who would think that the horse uh, running by and cutting you off is a thing to begin with, unless you've dealt with no, it No, no, it was, it was pretty nutty and I wasn't ready for it and, and I paid a price for it. Yeah. But anyway, that was day two. I jammed my boot back in there and we, we rode however, you know, many kilometers we rode that day. And, uh, by evening time, um, I did let the doctor have a look at it and it was very swollen and, you know, I can't remember, he might've given me a pain shot or something, but I, I was pretty insistent that it was a sprain. I'm not going to, I'm not going to not, not right. How was getting your boot off? 
it wasn't it wasn't really too bad. Um, one thing I did do that I I was instructed to do um, in the orientation and and all the pre meetings was I bought myself a, a really good set of MX boots. You know, uh, a very very stiff, um, good quality, high quality boots, mm-hmm. and I was glad I did because if I had I been riding in you know the stuff I normally ride in or are used to riding, you know, the softer ADV boots, uh, I'm sure I would have had a more severe injury. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's wow. So very lucky in that way or, or forward thinking of you really, I guess it, did they suggest yeah. that as part of the equipment? No, it was, it was definitely suggested. Yeah, that's um, good. Uh, yeah. Wesley, who's the, one of the partner founding partners along with Tom and, and another fellow, they, they, they were very insistent. Yeah, you need some good boots, yeah. you know. So when the, when the doctor looked at it and then, and did, like, he can't tell, obviously, if it's broken for sure, or, or could he? No, if he, if he, if he could, he kept it under his hat. Mm. I mean, I suspect he, he, that he suspected I had a fracture, but yeah. um, he could see that, that I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to be in a hurry to ride in one of the vans. And I definitely wasn't going to like ship myself off to the hospital right away. I was, that, that was not, not where I was at, you know? So I said, it's fine. It's fine. It may have been actually two days before I actually let him look at it. I can't really remember, you know, it kind of blurs together yeah. now, but we, you know, by, by day three, we were definitely in the Gobi desert. Day two, probably at the edge of it. So what, what was that like? You're still riding at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Oh, it was, it was something. I mean, it was challenging riding for me. Um, I, uh, like I said, I, I, I don't consider myself more than an intermediate guy in the dirt and late to it. And so I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't pretend to be a better writer than I am, than, than I am, but I am improving. And mm-hmm. I, I will say this ride improved my riding quite a bit. I learned a lot. But much more comfortable with the, letting the back end of the bike do whatever it has to do, you know, and just staying on yeah. the gas. <laughs> so we'll talk about the Gobi conditions, though. I mean, so what are we what are we looking at here? It was it was a mixture of kind of a tundra sort of. That's the best way I can describe it. Having been up in the tundra, like in that, the Northwest in Canada, um, it kind of looks like that. You know, that kind of uh, scruff, small scrub. And, and dirt uh, without a whole lot of definition to it. And then there'll be areas that are just full of rocks and then there'll be other areas that are real sandy. And as you're getting uh, closer to the Gobi, you get, you know, more and more of that type of stuff. And, you know, I, we didn't ride in a lot of uh, wet, which would have complicated things. I'm sure there's places that would have been quite tricky if, if it had been muddy, but we only had a couple of incidences of rain and none of it was enough to make a, to make a lot of mud. Which is, is great, of course. But so the terrain you're describing then you're, you're going from, from rocks to sand to, I guess, some somewhat hard pack with some, some loose rock on it or, or occasional rock on it. How did the bike handle through that compared to you riding your other bike? Like you're obviously comparing the two as you go. Yeah. Well, I mean, it like I said with the with the small bike the three hundred that I that I ride it's similar because they're both for me on the underpowered side but they're also worthy bikes you know they mm-hmm. they 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 have they've got good long 
suspension travel and they, I, I never, I don't think, well, maybe once or twice I might've bottomed the suspension. I, the big guys, they, they, they would bottom them. I, I would see them <laughs> at the bottom of their suspension. <laughs> did you guys set up your suspension? Did, did everybody go and crank up their, their preload if they needed to? Well, the, the front, there really wasn't anything to no, set. No, not the front. Okay. The front didn't really have anything to set. Um, the back, maybe one or two guys might've cranked up a little. I don't know. I think we kind of rode them as new bikes, kind of how they were for the most part. Mm-hmm. I don't think the rear spring was that accessible. It was a little tough to get to. You get to oh, take I a see. bunch of body parts off on that one. But um, anyway, the the bikes I thought were 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 pretty agile and and then the commentary from those that knew that had ridden these these other rides was that these were these were pretty nice bikes you know so in terms of you know a lower end dirt bike if you will it's it, they're, they're they're pretty good bikes you know yeah, and, very and capable. i mean cuz yeah. comparing it to your CRF 300L uh, that's a that's a nice bike and, yeah, you know, yeah. For, in the 300 class, that, that's a nice bike. So, I mean, if you're, you're thinking they're somewhat comparable, that's, that says a lot for this XR190. Yeah, it, it, it is. And, and they both suffer from uh, too soft a front end on them, the way they ship them out. And uh, on my bike, I, I, you know, I upgraded my suspension already, but, um, but they're still worthy and they're still, yeah. even with, even with a soft front end, they still, they, they still work, you know. So uh, how many days were you out for in total? It was 10 days of riding, I believe. Oh, 10 days. I think, awesome. Yeah, I think it was 10 days of riding. And then we had a huge party at the end, um, you know, in the Gobi with the Rangers and in the ceremony where we present them the bike. Um, right. Hold that for the end. I, I want to talk about that, but I'm more curious about what's going on in the, on the trip here as well. Oh, as yeah. far as the terrain goes, because if you ever anyone's ever seen pictures of Mongolia, and I think probably most people have, uh, it's it's just stunning and it's it's just so uh, otherworldly. So, w- what kind of things did you experience? What kind of things did you ride through that were really impressive? Well, the 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 thing that first impressed me was the fact that it was so vast and so open. I mean, you you'd be in a field what feels like a field, and there'd be like. 15 tracks going every direction and not a sign of, you know, civilization, no power lines, no fences, no anything, you know, you're just like, uh-huh. you know, so, you know, if you're, if you're not guided or have appropriate GPS or some way to know where you are, it would be very easy to get lost. Um, and then what, the terrain. What do you feel like when you're standing there in that terrain? Does that, does, cause a lot of people, when they go up North, for instance, into the tundra, they yeah. they described a, a feeling of of uh, an odd feeling of being um, uh, I guess insignificant. You know, do you get that sort of feeling in Mongolia? I y- you do, but for me, it's also a feeling of solitude. I mean, I, I there's something about that 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 vastness, that just unspoiled open wilderness that that that's that's soothing also. So mm-hmm. I, I and and of course at night it's a stunning. Uh, star show you, you know like the, yeah. the sky is no lights to, to pollute no light pollution yeah, yeah. and then you, you get to see the full stars it's always amazing uh, milky way is thick <laughs> yeah yeah what other sorts yeah. of things well that we, we've they took us specifically i think in certain areas where we got to vary the terrain so we did we did some uh riverbeds some that were dry and some that actually still had some water running in them. 
and those were like gravel and rock and you would have you know small mountains if you will all around you you know so it wasn't just all like open you know like sometimes mm -hmm. and it, it seemed to, to me that it and at each evening we would find ourselves a place to camp that was huddled in one of those rock formation areas you know so that was quite scenic and some of it was challenging riding as well with your riding style, as far as the group goes, are, are you moving fast? Are you moving slow? Or do you do a sort of a, a stop and catch up thing? How do they run it? Um, well, you're, you're following one another. Um, most of the time when you're, when you're at speed, you're, you're putting out a tremendous flume of, <laughs> of, of dust. So, <laughs> so it's like, you know, if you're spread out over, a mile and a half of run for 15 people, you can see everybody because you can see their dust cloud, you know, right, you just fall in the dust uh, cloud. Yeah. But they did have, they did have a system whereby if we're taking a path to the right versus a path to the left, there's a split in the road. One of the more experienced riders who was riding up closer to the front, they would stop and, and wait for the group to, to get to that place and steer them into the right path. So it was kind of a cooperative effort to keep everybody running in the same general direction most of the time. And that's one of the guides that's stopping or just one of the No, no, this is all this is all self self uh self administered. I mean they had there was 15 bikes and uh, of them I would say 12 were westerners and 3 were mongolians. Oh, I see. Um and the numbers of people that were able to do that most of those were regular attendees uh, you know maybe some of them hadn't even ridden with it before but they were confident enough riders that they they you know they self-selected in order to, to help the group get down the road right you mentioned that, that somebody else had a, a problem as well what happened there well one of the uh, the experienced riders brian who He's actually, I think, on the board of the Mongol Ecology now, um, but he's really into it. And he's, he's perhaps one of the better riders in the whole crew. He was riding sweep uh, for most of the trip. And um, two days before the, the end of the ride, um, he just took his eye off the ball. And it, it, it shows up in that film, but um, he went he went flying. He, he hit a little riser and it took him up and he landed wrong and he broke his collarbone and so so that took him out of the out of the ride for the rest of the time you know he he went with the doc to the hospital they x-rayed it they saw it and uh, he put it in a sling and he he stayed with us but he had to ride in the in the vans the rest of the, the last couple of days mm. yeah and it's a fairly i guess a fairly common injury for for motorcycling the collarbone it's the one that takes all the strain when you put out your hand to stop yourself when you're when you're going down. Yeah. Yeah. That's easy to do. Yeah. It's tough not to do, isn't it? I, I mean, you know, I guess if you're, uh, you know, one of the stunt riders or something like that, like that, you'll learn to tuck and roll, but it's really tough to remember to do when you're on your own and when you're surprised because who's ever prepared for it. 
Right. It's, it's nature's uh, neck brace is the way I look at it. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's what they, it's what nature gives us to protect us from breaking our neck, you know, this, this <laughs> well, bone will break first. <laughs> well, speaking of the sacrificial bone, yeah. Speaking of that, what are you wearing for gear? Do, do you like talk about your setup? Are you wearing a neck brace and, and your jacket and things like that? Uh, a, a number of the riders <clears throat> were wearing neck braces. I did not have a neck brace, but I did kit out really nicely and some of the sponsors for uh for the ride offered some discount codes and one of them happens to be like right in the town or across the river from where i am in hood river Mm -hmm. Uh, so you know i i i went over to their showroom and i picked up a bunch of new gear and i i kind of modernized my uh my dirt riding kit if you will so i had i had i I purchased like Liat armor for underneath my, my gear and I had proper riding pants and, and, uh, Jersey. Um, mm-hmm. anyway, uh, I, I, I bought a bunch of stuff from them and we had, uh, also, you know, climb made some stuff available in discount. So I, you know, I bought a big gear bag to haul all my stuff with. And anyway, I, I had, as I said, I bought, I bought proper MX boots SG12s and I had, you know, good armor, padded hips, padded seat, you know, padded chest, all armored pretty much under, under my Jersey, but I was, I was quite comfortable actually riding most of the time. And I had took my jacket along with me. I didn't, I didn't ever really use it. I, I took my, my heavy duty, what I normally ride in that jacket. And a lot of guys and gals did ride in those but I chose not to. I rode in in the jersey, and then when I needed a windbreak, I just put on my rain gear top over the top of that, and mm. it it just kept me more mobile. Like I felt like I had freedom of movement to actually work the bike. Hey, the the guy that broke his collarbone was he wearing yeah. a neck brace? Um, I'm trying to recall. I'm. I'm going to say that Brian was not wearing a neck brace. I don't think he was. Now that I'm, th- I'm thinking back of his kit and how he was riding, he was, he, he was, he had very similar gear on to what I was wearing. And I don't think it included a neck brace. Cause I, I kind of remember um, the Dr. Liet who, when we had him on the show for, for Liet uh, neck braces, he yeah. was saying something about research showing that the collarbone was often broken from the helmet actually going down and contacting the collarbone or that was the implication, something like that. That would um, make some sense. Yeah. It just makes you wonder. I mean, even with the boots that you were wearing, for instance, you're wearing proper motocross oh, yeah. boots and you can imagine how much worse things could have been. You know, yeah, and I wasn't had, at, I wasn't at great speeds on the impact, you know, yeah. I, I, we were probably cruising along at 30, some 35 miles an hour or something. It wasn't like we were flying the bikes. I mean, the bike's full out. <laughs> You know, right. Op- yeah, op- holding the throttle all the way open, we're we're good for about sixty miles an hour. I mean, it's like you weren't really going to fly down the road on this bike. Do you feel like you're overriding the bike sometimes when you when you're going along at those speeds? This little bike. Uh, I I don't know. I don't know what overriding would 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 constitute. I mean, in what way? Well, you just feel like you're almost on the edge of control, like you're pushing this thing, you know. Oh beyond. no, 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 no! I don't. I, I never. I never felt like that. I mean, I felt oh, really? you, you could, and especially the big guys, they were running them wide open all the time. I mean, you know, they did. They, it was all they could do to get what they wanted out of them. So no, they were. They were. They were comfortable, and the bikes were not at that speed. They weren't 
uh, they weren't head shaking or anything like that. Oh, I see. So you, you're still riding along with this, this broken ankle. What, like, when does that come to a head? Well, it's, <laughs> I, I was doing my denial, I guess. And I, I rode, I rode another nine days or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, it, we did the, the whole entire ride. And I, I had a couple other incidents where I came off the bike. And I had one that did force me into the van one day that um, was when we were going to those, to those, towards the dunes, a very loose stand, a lot of it. And uh, I just, I got into a head shake at speed. And next thing you know, I was over the bars and the bike was on top of me. And it hit me on the same leg hard and uh, oh. produced a hematoma on the bottom of my, my thigh, like a, like size of a baseball, you know? And, and Ooh. I got, I went to get up to dust myself off and walk and I couldn't, I was like, I was falling down. So anyway, one of the mechanics that day rode my bike the rest of that day. And I rode in one of the Toyotas with the Mongolian crew that day. Mm -hmm. uh, and I made the most of it and, you know, enjoyed the ride and all that and socializing with them and, and whatnot. And, uh, and then help set up camp when we arrived with the vans to, uh, to set up camp before the rest of them got in. That was the only day I kind of missed, you know, I was like, huh. it was a se separate incident accident on the same leg. So I was kind of hurt. And, uh, one of the gals there was nice enough to give me a massage. She knew I was hurting and worked on my aches and pains a little bit, which was nice. Uh, kind of made me feel, you know, comforted <laughs> anyway. So I, I, uh, I muddled through, you know, as it were, uh, and, you know, there's, there was, there was at least another two incidences where I went down, but you know, it wasn't, you know, if, if you ride motorcycles, you're going to fall. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's true. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, even your top riders, you know, we hear from Clinton Smout on here all the time. I mean, he drops a bike, Chris Birch, the same thing. He drops a bike. It's just, oh, yeah. you know, it's part of it when you're pushing, especially adventure bikes, especially when you get in a larger adventure bikes, but when you're pushing oh, yeah. it and, and out in the terrain, yeah, you've got to expect that's part of it. Yeah, no, I, I, I've, I've been upside down in a rock garden more than once, you know, with <laughs> <laughs> right. but what surprises me is you're riding along with a broken ankle just for the whole denial process to, to have your experience, but it worked. I mean, you, you, you got through yeah, it. Yeah, no. And I was, I was, let's say I had my own apothecary. I, I've done enough of these rides that I know if somebody comes off at speed, which has happened, and maybe not me, and they bust their ribs really hard and they just can't sleep that night, that if you have a little something to take the edge off, that'll help, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I kind of, I wouldn't say self-medicated, but I, others might, you know? <laughs> anyway, I, 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 I kind of got by with a minimal amount of, of painkiller help through the rest of the trip. And um, then, you know, when we got to back to town, we had that, as I said, that, that second get together, gathering party, whatever, the, the political one, the one with everybody in good clothes. Yeah. Um, I was dragging myself through town to go there. I was kind of limping along, you know, so I mean, <laughs> I knew I was, I knew I was still hurting, you know, I mean, there was no doubt about in my mind, you know, and I, I would go to the pharmacy and get myself what I could topical, you know, creams and 
yeah, I, I definitely wanted a bunch of aspirin because I knew I had to fly again and I, I had a certain amount of edema. And I, you know, I've been in that situation before, you know, you don't, you've, don't want to get a blood clot, so you try yeah. to thin your blood out, all that sort of type of thing when you're going to get on an airplane. So you but, didn't get your uh, foot checked until you got home? Actually, my wife and I were supposed to, she was generous enough to change our vacation plans to let me do this trip. Oh, but nice. We were supposed to have a month in Europe together. And so she pushed the Europe back to the end of my trip. She decided she would change all the accommodations and she would come over and join me in Germany at my friend's. And we would go from there and have our month and we were going to be in Italy and Croatia and finish in Greece and do all this stuff. And when I got back to Frankfurt, my friend's wife and my wife sat there and looked at that and they said, uh, he probably ought to be going west, not south. And I was once again, I'm saying, I'm not ruining your vacation. That's what I was. My mantra for the last two days of the ride was, I am not going to ruin my wife's vacation. I'm going to finish this ride and finish it safely. In fact, I, 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 the last two days of the ride, I rode right up behind Chuka and I would not let anybody take the number two position. I just rode, you know, very hard, but very controlled, watching everything he was doing and following his lines a, a great deal of the time. And I had absolutely no problem. I, I didn't go down at all, you know. Because you felt like that he's got the, he's, he's the best there. Well, and then I, I, my aggression level was where it needed to be to, to keep myself safe. You know, sometimes, right, yeah. sometimes backing off costs you more than it does to open it up. So no, for sure. If you get timid, that, that can cause you problems. Yeah. Yeah. So with you, you ended up meeting the park rangers in the end. And even if you don't, didn't speak to them, like if they couldn't speak to you, they couldn't speak English and you, and you weren't speaking Mongolian. Yeah. What was your impression of, of the life of the Mongolian park ranger? Did you get any sort of sense of what that was like? Well, in as much as you could in a brief encounter, you could see in their eyes. I mean, it's a hard life. You know, this, mm -hmm. what they do is difficult and dangerous. And, uh, you know, at the ceremony, they came riding in on their ponies, you know, on their horses. And yeah. I mean, you can just see these guys going out in the snow on those little horse, you know, step ponies. I mean, that's just, that's insane, you know, <laughs> you yeah, know, by to, our standards, right. I mean, you know, having yeah. life as easy as we have, as we have it in the Western world. Yeah, it's, it, yeah. it is. And, and the so, nomadic life is kind of as it was, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not that different than Genghis Khan days, you know, in terms of when you're out there with your pony in the middle of nowhere, you know, I mean, you got a few more luxuries, you know, but I mean, it's not like, it's not like it's changed a great deal. The city has changed. I mean, of course, yeah. And the fact that that people congregate in the city now, and half of their population now lives in the metropolitan area of Lampatar. But you know, when you're out in the country, you're out in El Campo. There, you're you're out there. You know. Yeah, and it's, I was curious about that because you know, with the advent of the internet, of course, and the advancement in cellular technology. I think in particular that even the most remote places in the world that, that would have been forgotten otherwise are now becoming globalized along with the, the, oh, yeah. the rest of it. Right. For, so for I, I was sure. curious if, if Mongolia, when you're, when you're out there, you still have that sort of raw disconnected remoteness feeling. Uh, you at times, at times, but you know, they're like Chuka was, was, you know, he was using a GPS to get us from here to there. They right. were, they were used, they were plugged into the technology they needed to get us safely from here to there. It wasn't independent of, of you know, you, you don't escape the technology now anywhere in the planet. I don't think you can't. No. You know, uh, but but it's it's uh, as far as the 
the cultural thing and the, they're, they're holding on to their heritage and their, their traditional ways. You know, when we passed through one of these towns that had some horse races going on and there was all these Mongolian folks decked out in their finery on horseback going to the horse race, you know? And I mean, it's just like small town in the middle of the Gobi desert, you know? Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, that, that probably hasn't changed a great deal, you know? But you know how we, we, um, we talk about like, uh, if you're describe Americans or you describe Germans, you know, sometimes or South Africans, you, you know, you've, you've got a certain personality or way of describing them. How would you describe the Mongolians like culturally? Oh, they're, they're, they're kind of quiet, circumspect, you know, I think they're, they, they're, they're, uh, I don't know, they're, to me, they're, they're kind of family, as most people third world are, family oriented, much, much more so than Western folks have gotten. Mm -hmm. Um, So family and tradition means a heck of a lot. Um, they're not afraid to wear their little three cornered hats in the city streets. You know what I mean? Like, like yeah. they're, 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 they're proud of, they're proud people. They're proud of who they are. They're, they're uh, proud of their heritage. There's certain things that are, um, you know, in their blood wrestling, uh, <laughs> you know, horses, horses are almost deities, you know, they're almost, they're part of the pantheon of, of, of what, what it is to be a Mongolian is the horse, you know, and they all seem to have a really good sense of humor. They like to, they like to party. They like to drink. They like, uh, they like to socialize, but, but they're, they're, they're very contained people. I think they're very, they're very, I don't know. It seems from the outside that they're content with their, with their life and culture. Like they're not looking for a lot. I don't think, you know, the thing with the park rangers, though, when it comes to the, the motorcycles, they see those as tools, which is a, a little bit different than the way we look at them. Like we look at them as pleasure and adventure and something to get out and challenge ourselves. But yeah, when you're giving no. that bike to the ranger, that's a tool. You're, you're giving yeah. them a tool. I already got a bunch of, uh, from our, from our WeChat or our, what's up? I, I, what's up? I get them confused. WeChat was in China. Uh, what WhatsApp is the one that the that everybody uses in the West. Anyway, the WhatsApp group is still there, you know, and they're sending me pictures and on girl, this this gal is really great gal was part of the crew. She sent a bunch of pictures of the, the Rangers on the very bikes we gave them up in the snow on these things, you know. Oh, like wow. they're already they're already at work on these bikes, you know. So yeah, yeah it's it's a tool, it's a work tool, and they they were just thrilled to get them. There's a whole lot more people vying for them then can get one. Right. So, you know, only, only so many are going to get them each time. Um, but you do feel like, like you're doing something positive for the, for the people and, and also, you know, potentially positive for, for the ecology. It's 71, you doing this and just the way you're talking about it and the way you look at, at adventure, you're an inspiration for your daughters, but you're also an inspiration for anybody who listens to this. When you hear this, it just, it, like when you're younger and you hear somebody that's older doing something like this, you think it just opens up the possibilities, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not a death sentence to get in your seventies, you know? Yeah. If you if you're fortunate enough to have pretty decent health and you take care of yourself and you're, you're you know, you exercise and you get decent diet, um, 
I, I think, you know, the potential for, uh, for at least another decade of this sort of thing, I think is there. And I, I imagine I'll be doing it. Do you, do you have limits? Like, do you, do you have limits? Do you know your limits? Like, in other words, is there, are oh, there limitations at 71 that, you know, you wouldn't have maybe at 50 or something oh, like for that? Sure, for absolutely for sure. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, to, uh, take windsurfing, for example, I, I live here in Hood River, you know, at least half the year. And I've been commuting out of Hood River here for 25 years. Anyway, I, I was an avid windsurfer. And, you know, when I was 40, I, I could go out there for, you know, six hours in the cold water and just hammer away at it. I loved it. You know, mm-hmm. now, now, you know, an hour would wear me out. You know, I can feel, right. I can, I can feel the, you know, the physical limitations and, and knowing that when you ride to part of, part of downsizing, I think for some of us older guys has to do with that. You know, when you, when you are in that high pass and you, you're, by yourself for whatever reason and you turn the bike over, you want to be able to stand it up and get back on and finish the ride, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so lightening up lower horsepower, you know, the, the, the smarter, and of course learning how to do the thing better, you know, I mean, taking some instruction from and getting some proper technique, not, none of that hurts. And you can learn things at, at an older age and, and employ them and become a better rider. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm more orienting towards lighter bikes, knowing my limits, riding, yes, riding single track and doing things that I haven't done before uh, are, and getting better at them, but at a level that I can maintain versus like, you know, going 150 miles an hour on a motorcycle on the road track, you know, yeah. that's, I'm kind of getting away from that, but uh, So as you're sitting there now, just coming back from this Rally for Rangers trip to Mongolia, you've got your feet up. What are you dreaming about as your next adventure? Well, as I mentioned, I, I, I would love to do one of these with my daughter. Next year is the 10th anniversary for, for the Mongolia. Now, they're mm. not going to ride in the Gobi. They're going to go up north in the north uh, east, I believe. But um, that's a possibility. They, they also will have one or two other rallies elsewhere in the world, which would also appeal to me because I'd love to ride in Africa. Um, I also have some other friends independent in South Africa who've invited me to ride sometime um, for a time. I mean, I've had, I've had a Jones, I really got into adventure riding, uh, reading Gregory Fraser's book, Riding South. And at the time, my daughter was, uh, my youngest was living in Argentina. And uh, I very so much wanted to throw a leg over my bike and ride South. I wanted to go on the bike. And uh, I let my wife talk me out of that one. And we ended up flying down there and renting cars and doing other things. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I still, I still want to do the, uh, the South America ride, you know, and, uh, maybe with another old duffer who's of my, uh, ilk, you know, <laughs> uh, Lester, well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. I really enjoyed hearing about your, your trip to Mongolia. And, and thank you for being an inspiration for all of us. Well, thank you for uh, having me. I, I, like I said, would not have happened without your show. Well, I really appreciate that. Thanks, Lester. All right. Thank you. That was Lester Appel healing his ankle, getting ready for his next adventure. 
We've got some photos of Lester and his adventure with Rally for Rangers in the show notes on the Adventure Rider Radio website, adventureriderradio.com. Oh, and, and Rally for Rangers, we had Tom Medema. He's one of the guys that organizes this thing at Rally for Rangers on our show back in February, I believe it was, in 2023. We've had him on a couple of times. We've got some links in the show notes so you can go and listen to what Rally for Rangers is all about, uh, as well as a a link to their website, I I think, is in there as well. Such a great program they're running. I would encourage everyone to have a look and, and maybe dream of the adventure you could have. It's all there on the website in the show notes, adventureriderradio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course you. Thank you very much for listening and being a part of this. I hope you caught last week's episode. We have a brand new uh, series that we're doing now called Deep Trouble, where we sort of listen to the story about something that's gone wrong for somebody and then try and dissect it and see if we can come up with anything that we can learn from it, which, of course, there's always something to learn. Deep Trouble, you'll find it on our website. And, of course, just go and listen to last week's show. You'll hear it there. The other thing we have going is Adventure Rider Radio Raw. That's a separate show that comes out once a month. You need to subscribe separately. You'll find it anywhere you find podcasts. But all this information is on our website, adventureriderradio.com. Of course, the show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. We would really encourage you to drop by the website, ask you to drop by the website, adventureriderradio.com, and click on support. Just have a look. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Bridget McCutcheon, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 